well, uh, my daughter started to sit in the in the service, and one day we were at home, and she goes, you talk about food an awful lot from the pulpit. Well, today, today it's kind of central. Eat your bread with joy. So I thought I'd begin with a food illustration, right? Everybody enjoys a good meal. I had one Friday night, and just those meals, you just, you enjoy them, you see it when it's on the plate, and you see what's before you, and you're just like, I cannot wait to partake of this. And then often you walk away from that meal and you remember one or two things about it. And so today, in light of Jesus' call to Peter, passed on to all pastors, feed my sheep, I hope to give you a good meal from God's Word, and we're going to note at least one thing to remember when it comes to marriage. Uh, this passage is, is set up chiastically. You'll notice I've indented the priority of joy. It's because it's set up that the inevitability of death and the unpredictability of life kind of surround this idea of the priority of joy or delight. And notice it's, it's centered there on purpose. But we're Americans, so you, you like to go linearly. So here's how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at the inevitable death that's coming, the unpredictable life we live, and joy in the Lord. And here's my main point so you don't miss it. In view of the inevitability of death, and the unpredictability of life, here's the key. Not just enjoy God's gifts, but here's how we're changing it. Enjoy God through his gifts. But before we get there, we must look at the serious nature of death that comes to all of us. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. But in all this, he looks back to 16 and 17 of the last chapter, and he says, man cannot know, he seeks, and he will not find out. In all of this, I laid my heart, examining it all, but how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. God literally holds the world in his hands, right? We've sang that since we were kids. He's got the whole world in his hands. Whether it is love or hate, the idea is we don't know what's coming. Whether what's coming next is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. And so we, one, somebody wrote a book. I remember being in, in high school, reading this, or not reading the book, but seeing the title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And from a purely human perspective, we don't know exactly what God's up to. What's coming next? Why did he allow Friday to happen the way it happened? But obviously, from the scriptures, we see God is at work. We see it in the book of Job, that we're given insight into his life that he knew nothing about. And Paul says it like this in Romans. He works, and we know for those who love God, All things work together for good. Notice how that's centered. And those who are called according to his purpose. So God's working all things for good, surrounded by those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Paul confirms and broadens our idea that God, though we don't know what he's up to, he's working all things for good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? That God is up to something good, even in light of Friday. We're going to talk about. He is absolutely sovereign, and he's up to something good. Verse 2, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, he who swears and he who sons an oath. He, he creates two types of people, those who do good and those who do evil calls them righteous he calls them wicked those who are clean and pure and following god doesn't mean they're perfect but they follow god they confess their sins they're pure and those who are unclean 
those who sacrifice, those who go and they give to the Lord of their time, talents, and treasures, and those who don't. To the good one and to the sinner, to those who swear. He's not saying you cannot swear. He just says like in verse 5, guard your steps, be not rash with your mouth. And then those who shun an oath, those who make an oath and then don't keep it. He's saying to everyone, this same event happens. What is this same event? What is the equalizer of them all? Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What is it? Well, first he's going to talk about the sin of man. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and the madness in their hearts while they live. And after that, here's the issue. They go to the grave. Death. It happens to everyone. He gives you that list. He shows you. He shows you all sorts of people. And he says, death happens to everyone. All people are brought in the world sinful, and all people are going to die. We were taking our kids through Genesis, reading it together as a family, and in chapter 5, I read it over, and every time I came to it, and he died, went on, and he died, read, 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 and he died, over and over again, I said, kids, what's the main theme of that chapter? Death, yes, death. The wages of sin is death. We're all going to die. And if you don't face that reality, you don't prepare for that day. The older I get, the more I start to think about, not the day of my death, like what will it be? I mean, who's coming to my funeral? Is my wife going to cry? Not that kind of thing. But knowing that time is limited, what? knowing that you're going to die, and for us, knowing that we're going to die and we're going to someplace far better than this world, how do I live my life? We're all going to die because we're all sinners. That's what he says. The children, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Here's what it says in Genesis. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on earth. And here's the key, that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Wow, it's a powerful verse. But Paul, Paul says there's a way out of that. And he talks about the madness. Solomon said, the madness that is in their heart. You mean to say that we sinners are crazy people? We're mad? According to Paul, it says this. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps, interesting, grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And here's the key in verse 26. And they come to their senses. I will say this about myself, and then you can agree with me in your own life or not. Every time I sin, it is absolutely senseless. It is senseless because I know the truth. I know who God is. I know what his word says. And so when I choose to sin, it is nonsensical. The key is I have escaped the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. God has released me. That's why when you sing those songs and I heard you and I love hearing your voices, that when it, that I am free. I am no longer uh, in the snare of what plagued me. God has set me free. So though death is coming, I, I can approach it with joy. I can approach it with joy. Verse four, how but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And here in this context, he's just talking about being alive, having a heartbeat, breathing. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. At least when you're alive, you know what's up. When you're dead, you don't. But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. 
and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. The idea is when you're alive, you can do things. You have things to do. Jesus confirmed this in John 9, 4. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. He's talking about in the book of John, night and day, death and life. He's talking about there's a time when you will have no more opportunity to work. And Paul expanded this. Paul expanded it and said, you know what? Though death is coming, here's what he said. I'm hard pressed between the two. Should I stay? Should it? Think about this. This would be as if I'm Paul. Should I stay and serve Eagle Bible Church or should I die and go to be with Jesus? Here's what he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ because it's far better. Especially in light of what happened on Friday. It's far better. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's our prayer. One thing's for sure. We are imperfect saints and we're going to die. And the context of this chapter is death is not good. Death is inevitable. We must be ready. It is painful. We must be prepared. That is death. It's inevitable. It's coming. And then we've got this unpredictability of life. Verse 11, I've moved it up just to show you a point. Again, that I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift. What? I thought the race went to the swift. I mean, we all want to go further faster. No, nor the battle to the strong. Wait a second. The stronger live longer. Nor, to the, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who's with knowledge, but the time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to everyone. It's Murphy's Law. Whatever will go wrong will go wrong. For watch this in verse 12. For man does not know his time. He, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. See, mankind can get trapped in this pursuit of being faster, stronger, healthier, wealthier, more intelligent, so that the children of man are ensnared at an evil time. Not only are we ensnared, but the time is evil. Paul said in Galatians, Jesus delivered us from this present evil age, and that is the age we live in. It is not presently, uh, it is presently what it will not be. In the future, it will be renewed. It will be totally different. But now it's present and now it's evil. And when this happens, it comes suddenly. Each one of us can give examples. I don't have to give you story after story. We can go through life where by chance or just it so happened, tooth issues, dog bites, potential cancers. We're not exempt from trouble. What do we do? I mean, in light of this, we're going to die and life, life literally, and so you really can't say life. Because if you say life, you've, you've taken one step back. Who's in control of life? God. God throws curveballs. My son wants to know how to throw a curveball. God throws us curveballs. And so in light that death is coming and sometimes curveballs are thrown, what do we do? Let me give you a preview. We enjoy God. We delight in God through his gifts. And notice, I'm going to change this because I want to camp on something today. But he's going to show us how to, Solomon's going to show us how to enjoy God through our physical life. He's going to show us how to enjoy God through our spiritual life. And I've switched it. He's going to show us how to enjoy God through our toil in life, our work, our day-to-day. And finally, though it's verse 9 here, we're going to end with it in our marital life. Verse 7 begins with this. And for, the, for as many years as I've Read this, I've missed this until you start to slow down and study it. The key word in this whole 
section, 7 through 10, is go. And I've missed that. We all miss this, and we can miss this. This is the call of the whole section. It's the Great Commission, 900 B.C. In light of what we know, he wants us to go. And what does he want us to do as we go? Number one, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Eat your bread with joy. Go get your, I don't care, Go. Get, you can get Wonder Bread, White Bread if you're there. You can get Whole Wheat. You can get Rudy's Organic if that's where you're at. Put some whatever kind of spread on there and just put it in your mouth and enjoy it. I'm sorry, paleo people. Uh, bread is good. And drink your wine with a merry heart. Did Solomon just say that? I mean, I mean, that's Old Testament. Folks, Jesus made good wine in John 2. So much so they said, what did you do here? You, you, you should have brought this out first because Jesus is a good vintner, right? Basically, in the, in the mundane, he's saying in eating and drinking in the very mundane things in life, find joy. When you're mowing your lawn, enjoy it. Uh, if you, gentlemen, have to vacuum the carpet, it's mowing indoors. Just, just mentally go there. Just You are mowing. Just enjoy it. Why? Why? Why can we find joy in bread and wine in the Monday? Why? For God has already approved what you do. I love the song choices today, and especially with we, how can it be? I just wanted to get up. Here's how it can be, because you've been saved by grace. How can it be? Solomon had already said in verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And to take that verse, it is a, it is a, he who is joined with all the living has hope. In that context, he was saying, those, those who are living at least have hope that they have things to do. And I want to say, you know what? You and I have been joined, just like I read earlier, with the living God through the living word at the living stone. We have a living hope. How did this happen? Well, let's just stay in Ecclesiastes. We've been joined to this living hope. If we expand it within the Old Testament, it says this in Zephaniah three sixteen and 17. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, and you can expand this to the church, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Don't miss this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's living. He's not some far off idea. A mighty one who will save. Amen? And he, watch this, watch this. If you're ever struggling, does God approve of me? He will rejoice over you with gladness. This is God having taken joy in you. He will quiet you by his love. And I love this. He will exult over you with loud singing. He's got a great voice. Like up here, I sing and I kind of keep it here because I don't want to distract you. But he will, he will exult over you with loud singing. How does that happen? Jesus tells us in John 6, 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. You want God to exult over you with loud singing? You've got to go through the Son, and I can think of no better paragraph in Scripture than Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, 
not by works, you are declared not guilty. If you're here today and there's a sin that you think that God can't forgive, he's declared you not guilty. And thus you have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ, through my Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we, and today we are standing by grace alone. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith, not by works, and we stand. We stand. It's the, it's the picture Paul says, it is a firm, it is a stance. By grace, we stand. We don't cower. And we rejoice. There's a joy in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that's, that should be enough, Paul says. Not only that, we rejoice in our suffering. And we're going to suffer. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. How can you eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart? For God has already, or in some translations long ago, approved what you do. He has set it into motion. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, uh, before he created the world, he chose you in him. It is a done deal. Yes, we have a responsibility. Yes, we live it out. But my friends, just like we sing, you are free. You're free. Galatians 5 says it like this. Therefore, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back there. You are free. Only do not use your evil or use your freedom for evil. Here's how Luther said, love God and do what you want. Because to the degree you do this, you can do this in pure freedom, in pure peace, that you can enjoy your bread, you can drink your wine with joy, because God already approves what you do. Amen? That's if Solomon knew where you might be going, he says, now, there's your physical life. Spiritual life, verse 8. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Not only are we free to follow God, but we need to stay pure and devoted to him. Paul said it like this in Romans 3, 13, 13, and 14. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but here, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon's talking about garments that are white. One day we will put those on, Revelation 3, 4. Paul says even now, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a clothing illustration and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Stay pure, stay devoted. You mean I can enjoy the mundane things in life and still live pure and holy? Yes. You mean it's not some weird thing where I've got to follow all these man-made rules? No, follow the scriptures. Stay devoted to God and you are free. And then I move verse 10 up. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds it to do, do it with all your might. I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here. In light of being free, in light of God already approving you, whatever your hand finds to do, wherever you're at, be all there. You don't have, I'm saying it right here, you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do everything. You can say no, but whatever your hand finds it to do, do it with all your might. 
For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you're going. He's saying, while you're here on earth, give it your all. I would say to, if I were anywhere across the United States, maybe even into England, because I went there last year and it's just as hustle and bustle as here. Here's what I would say. Work hard, play hard, go all in every day, but ruthlessly, ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. We are such a busy people. I went to a practice the other day and the kid came an hour late and I said, did you guys miss the time? Oh no, we've been at this practice and we do this and we just go from here to here to here to here. And I just wanted to say, and I maybe I'll get bold enough one day just to say, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you put it? Well, you got to keep the kids busy. No, you don't. It's called a book. Give them a book. (laughs) Teach them to read. That'll keep them busy. But they just move. We go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Carve out time in your schedule. Stay devoted to the Lord. I mean, Alabama, they're no theologians, but they had a song once that... I rush and rush until life's no fun. All I have to really do is live and die. And I'm in a hurry and I don't know why. That's pretty good theology from the boys from Alabama. What did Paul have to say about this? I mean, he's more of a theologian than those than that group. Whatever you do, see, there's that, wherever your hand finds you do, whatever you do, work heartily. Here's the key for us as Christians. As for the Lord and not for men, who are you serving? You don't need to go out and put my boss as a Jewish carpenter on your bumper. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing, here's why you do it. Because in your mind, you were convinced, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, your king, the one who's in supreme control of all things. You're serving him. So now I come to verse 9. This is a great verse. In so many ways. Enjoy. There's that word joy again. Or look to, rejoice in, enjoy life. This life where death is inevitable and life itself is unpredictable. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love or with the life of your youth all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy life with your wife, gentlemen, or enjoy life with your husband, ladies. Now, why is this so significant? Who is this that's writing this? This is Solomon who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He's at the end of his life and he's reflecting on it. And he doesn't say, you know, about 10 of them will work. (laughs) From Bible.org, Solomon had had many honeys and many honeymoons to the demise of his kingdom. He treated himself to hundreds of wives and concubines. Now, at the end of his life, He wishes he had lavished all his love on the wife of his youth. A man who had a thousand women now speaks in the singular 
rather than the poor. Did you catch that? So that is why you go back and you enjoy life with the wife, singular, near you. One woman, one heart. He goes on to say, Husbands, love your wife with every fiber of your being, for this may be your lasting life. Listen to her, talk to her, spend time with her, make love to her, no matter how many times she resists, tell her she is beautiful. Establish time, engage in talk, enjoy the touch, and always be tender. Enjoy life with the wife of your youth. If we are to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in our life, I would say ruthlessly cultivate time with your wife. One woman, one man. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case in America. And we must address it here today. I'm going to begin with a little video to set the tone. Most of you know by now, the court handed down a ruling that essentially redefines what marriage is in American culture and in American life. This is not the time for Christians to panic. We have a God who is sovereign. The Supreme Court can do many things, but the Supreme Court cannot get Jesus Christ back into the grave. And so we ought to be the people of joyful confidence. We also ought to be the people who recognize and know that uh, although some things have not changed, many things have changed. We need to be the people who know how to articulate a Christian vision of marriage and sexuality that will be increasingly countercultural from this point on. People in our neighborhoods, many of them not only will not agree with us on the definition of marriage as the union of one man and one woman representing Christ in the church, they, they won't even understand it in many cases. We need to know how to explain what we believe and why we believe it and then we need to embody that Christian vision of marriage and sexuality in churches that are holy and churches that are on mission. The other thing that we need to remember is there are many people outside the court today who are exuberant because they believe that what the court has done today is to give them something that will fulfill them and make them happy. I think just as the woman at the well that Jesus encountered in Samaria, it won't do that. Our churches need to be the places who can receive the refugees from the sexual revolution, those who have been hurt and harmed by it. We can't do that if we give up the gospel. We can't do that if we give up what the Bible teaches about marriage and sexuality. And we can't do that if we're angry at our neighbors and screaming at them rather than loving them and speaking to them about the gospel that has saved us. And so let's stand firm in the gospel. There are resources available for you at ERLC.com for your church as we move forward. It has happened. It is no surprise. And I want to read to you something written 11 years ago. One of my favorite pastors was writing on this very issue, talking about what's changing in the world. What has changed dramatically in the last 50 years is the concept of meaning and truth in our culture. Once it was the responsibility of historical scholars and judges and preachers to find the meaning of a text, an essay, the Constitution, the Bible, and to justify it with grammatical and historical arguments and then explain it. Meaning and text 
was not created by scholars and judges and preachers. It was found because the authors put it there. Authors had intentions, and it was a matter of integrity to find what a writer intended. That was the meaning of the essay, the Constitution, the Bible. Everybody knew that if a person wrote no and someone else creatively interpreted it to mean yes, something fraudulent had happened. But we've fallen a long way from that integrity. In historical scholarship and in constitutional law and in biblical interpretation, it is common today to say that a meaning is whatever we see, not what the author said or intended. To get right to the point today, this is in 2004, the Constitution is being amended whether we like it or not. That is, courts are finding there there what never was there in any of the author's minds, namely a right to marriage between two men or two women. This kind of so-called interpretation creates out of nothing a definition of marriage that has never existed. In other words, the question is not whether the Constitution will be amended concerning the meaning of marriage and the rights of homosexual people to marry. The question is simply how it will be amended. That was in 2004. Will it be by the means established of the Constitution itself, or will it be by the Supreme Court creating a meaning for the Constitution which was never there in the, in the author's farthest imaginations? Being Christian pilgrims in America does not end our influence. It takes out the swagger of it. We don't get cranky when evil triumphs for a season. We don't whine when things don't go our way. We are not hardened with anger. We understand what's happening is not new. The early Christians were profoundly out of step with culture. The imperial words of Christ were ringing in their ears. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Folks, if you don't believe this is true, here's another comment on the naive evangelicals who will try to avoid this. Especially among evangelicals, there is a naive belief that if only we were winsome enough, kind enough, compassionate enough, the culture would welcome us with open arms. But now our love, expressed in the fullness of a gospel that identifies homosexual conduct as sin, but then provides eternal hope through justification and sanctification, our love is seen as hate. Christians who have not suffered for their faith often romanticize persecution. They imagine, they imagine themselves willing to lose their jobs, their liberty, or even their lives standing for the gospel. Yet, when the moment comes, at least here in the United States, they often find that they simply can't abide being called hateful. It creates a desperate panic response. No, you don't understand. I'm not like those people, the religious right. Thus, at the end of the day, a church that descends from the apostles and withstands beatings finds itself unable to withstand tweetings. Social scorn is worse than the lash. This era of sexual liberty, the marriage of hedonism to meaning, and the establishment of a new civic religion, the black-robed priesthood has spoken, will the church bow before their new masters? There is hope. Because we have some savvy believers who are legally trained and are out there with the new act the, that's called the First Amendment Defense Act so that churches don't lose their tax-exempt status. But that's not the only thing that's out here. Here's what's out here with this issue that just got passed. And I read to you, one of, not because I'm making a political statement, because I'm showing you that when you veer off from this, this is what you get. 
This is Chief Justice Roberts. Although the majority randomly inserts the adjective to in various places, it offers no reason at all why the two-person element of the core definition of marriage may be preserved while the man-woman element may not. Indeed, from the standpoint of history and tradition, a leap from opposite-sex marriage to same-sex marriage is much greater than from a two-person union to plural unions, which have deep roots in some cultures around the world, i.e. there are polygamous cultures out there today. If the majority is willing to take the big leap, same-sex marriage, how can it say no to the shorter one that is polygamy? Where do you draw the line, friends? Solomon said it like this. I merely repeat to you what's in the scriptures. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. One man, one woman. That is how God intended it from the beginning. And we could trace it through. This isn't just like some commentator nonsensically doesn't do his research, says, oh, there's only one verse in the Old Testament in Leviticus. No, no. Let's start, and I'll just give you 30 seconds, and you can see it is a thread of the Scripture. Let's start in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Singular. Solomon, enjoy enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Jesus said and just confirmed creation. He didn't like divorce. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Paul picked it up and said, this is the greatest gospel illustration out there. I'll read you that in a minute. And at the very end, and we'll see that in a few more minutes, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's it's throughout the whole Bible. It's not a one-off issue. So here's what's coming. And so I want to reiterate what Russell Moore says. Number one, we're not going to be alarmed. Amen? We're not alarmed. I heard about it on Friday, went to dinner Friday night, watched the Women's World Cup soccer, and moved on. We're not alarmed. I slept well. My wife said I was snoring like a man. I mean, it was just per not alarmed. We're not going to be angry, right? We're not going to be angry. We're not going to hold up signs. God hates what we're not going to do that. Nor are we going to be ambiguous. We're not going to not say anything. I'm not. And the elders of this church aren't going to just not say anything and hope this issue goes away. And So here's what we have to say. Here are seven statements you will hear in the media that just aren't true. Number one, Christians who oppose gay marriage need to move on. You guys are living in a yesteryear. No, we're not moving on. We're going to take a stand. And as Al Mohler said to my former pastor, this is of mice and men. We will either stand, some will scatter. Christians who oppose gay marriage are ignorant. No, they're not. I, it's somewhere over there. I've got a thing on protecting your ministry written by men and women who have great minds. We're not ignorant. We're very intelligent. In fact, we're more logical on this issue than, than most. I'll just go down one area in this, think about it. Just think about man. Why man and why woman? Just let's go back to why why man and woman. Why didn't if God was so 
wise, and he could have created the world the way he wanted it to be. Why didn't he just make us all men or all women? He, he, there was wisdom there. And if you go back, whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist, and we are not evolutionists, so don't go there, but just think about it. Just think about it for a second. By the way, marriage is supernatural. Did you know this? I was thinking about this all weekend. The evolutionist has nothing to say for marriage. It is supra. It is above nature. You don't see weddings held for meerkats. When's the last time you went to a meerkat wedding? And so, but, but if you go back to, and this is the very origin of life, everybody wants to know where I came from, what I'm supposed to do, what went wrong, what's the solution, and where I'm going. If you go back to the very first question, you have two options, creation or evolution. And either option you go with, let me just say it like this, homosexuality doesn't fit. If you're an evolutionist, it can't fit with your thinking. Survival of the fittest. You will die out in a generation. We go with creation, the wise creator who made man and woman to be in union together. We're not ignorant. Christians who oppose gay marriage are scared. No, we're not. We're just concerned. We're not scared. In fact, we're, we're actually going to watch just how Roe v. Wade came. We're not going to be alarmed. And now one of those parties in that case has said that was wrong. And the same thing will happen there. Christians who oppose gay marriage are narrow-minded. I prefer biblically-minded. You, you can say narrow, but I could argue I'm really glad my pilot is narrow-minded. When I get on a plane, I'm glad he's pretty narrow-minded as to how to fly a plane. If you and I were to go, because Lauren can fly planes, if we're and you can too, can't you? If we were to get on a plane, I don't want them to be open-minded about, well, I know physics says this, but I'm just going to be open-minded. I prefer biblically minded. It is a narrow view, but it's biblical. I'm glad my doctor, if I were going in for brain surgery, is narrow minded. Christians who oppose gay marriage are intolerant. No, we're not. We're actually trying to live out true tolerance. You can believe what you want to believe, and we're going to believe what we're going to believe, but you can't tell us or penalize us for what we believe. Christians who oppose gay marriage are unloving. No, actually, we're the, we're the exact opposite. The most loving thing we can do, as Russell Moore said, is to present to you the gospel because we all, all of us, are sinners. And Christians, this is where it's heading, who oppose gay marriage are bigots. That's what you're going to hear. You're hate mongers. You're just like the racists. Three times I talked to my friend, Dr. Denny Burke, yesterday on the phone. Three times it's presented to the Supreme Court that they're trying to make homosexuality a protected class. And so if we oppose them, then we are bigots, we are hate-filled, and that's just not true. So what are the seven truths Christian must believe about marriage and homosexuality? It's very simple. I, I came up with these pretty quick. God created marriage. I know, you're thinking, man, he's brilliant. I mean, subject, verb, Predicate, as unbelievable. Genesis 22, and the Lord God who made the woman, formed her from Adam's rib, brought her to the man. He created it. He was the first father. He was the first pastor. He walked the first woman down the aisle. He started it. And God created marriage between one man and one woman. The man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, not wives. Now, everybody gets into the whole, doesn't God 
uh, isn't polygamy in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. That's another sermon for another day, but he worked with people where they're at. That was not the ideal from the beginning. Marriage between a man and a woman is the foundation of all societies. Think about this. When you read your Bible, if you begin Genesis 1, Genesis 2, it's at the end of Genesis 2, the first didactic teaching in the Scriptures is on marriage. It's not on how to run a church. It's not on how to run government. It is on marriage. This is the foundational unit of all society. That's where it gets me concerned, is we don't even see that. Not we, but some. Marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to just read this to you because you you and I need to understand this. When you do weddings and you get up there and you wives submit to your husbands and husband love your wife and you tell all these stories and you you would take a bullet for her, wouldn't you? Yes, and you also need to clean the dishes. What? Yeah, do that. And you're and you're building this up. And then Paul says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, one, and the two shall become one flesh. Interesting. We want to hold on to the two, but we don't. We want to give up everything else at the Supreme Court level. Here's Paul's statement in 32. This mystery, this mystery of man and woman in union with each other is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. It's not like some pastor woke up one day and goes, oh, man, marriage is such a good picture of the gospel. I'll preach it. It has been meant from the beginning of time that this thing called marriage points to that thing called the gospel. It is a picture. Jesus Christ coming, sacrificing his life, redeeming a bride, taking that away. And then here's the big one. Homosexuality is a sin. There's no denying it. Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. Romans 1. We are living... If you ever wanted to figure out, is the Bible real and am I in a society where the Bible itself can compare? We are living in Romans 1. God has officially given this country over to their depraved minds. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Now, for do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And it's one among the list, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles. Swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. People often ask and say to me, why do you guys make such a big deal of this one particular sin? I mean, there's a whole list there. Amen. We are all sinners. We're all in need of the Savior. But... I've never seen an adulterer. I've never seen an idolater. I've never seen a thief or the greedy or the drunkard jockeying for position at a national level to promote their sin. That's why, that's why it's so important that you see that. Yes, it's among the list. Why We're not singling anything out. They have chosen to single themselves out and we're just saying you're wrong. I don't see alcoholics and those addicted to drugs saying, I need rights. true church will not compromise on the issue of biblical marriage. 
There will be churches who, and there are churches today, who are just in celebration. That is not the true church. I'm just telling you right now. My wife looked on Facebook just the other day just to see the buzz. Of, and we have people that we know we went to church with in Texas. And they're just all excited because they have a friend or they have a friend of a friend. That's not the true church. I'll just tell you that. right. That's not the true church. And here is where we're going to end with the anticipation. We're not alarmed. We're not angry. Neither are we ambiguous. But we are anticipating. The true church will continue to preach the gospel and speak the truth in love, calling all to repent. We're not just singling out one uh, sin, but all to repent and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Because in that same list in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, you get this whole list and then there's this hope. And there's this hope because I see myself in this verse. And if you were a former alcoholic or a former addict or a former womanizer or a former whatever, you see yourself in 1 Corinthians six eleven, and such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. We will continue to preach grace. How can you be free from the sin of homosexuality? The gospel. Can you be free? How can it be? They can be singing that song too. And we want this to be a place where they can come and hear the good news. But we want to be clear from the get-go, not two days after the decision has been made. This is where we stand. And I want you to know that your elders are not just ho-hum in this, wonder what we ought to do. We've already thought about it. There are five things that we're going to be working through on Tuesday night to put our church in a position where we will not we will be persecuted we're not denying that but we will dot our i's and cross our t's when it comes to membership marriage policies hiring policies etc we are not alarmed we are not angry i'm speaking directly i'm not angry i'm disappointed but we're not ambiguous this is truth. Not because I wrote it, because God wrote it. I'm done. No, you don't ever end like that. Where do we, where do you go from there? I'm just kidding. That's terrible. Judd, show us the hope. No problem. All I have to do is do this. Said it last week. I read the end of the book. So I'll just go to Revelation 19. There it is. It's right there. It's even highlighted in my, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today we've talked about food. We've talked about joy. And we've talked about marriage. And it's all right here. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. That's Hebrew for praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice, there's joy, and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's you and me. Be happy. And there's that picture of marriage again. It was granted her to clothe herself. Solomon said, 
Keep your clothes free from stain. She has clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, and let's end with this, These are the truth. The truth. This is the truth. These are the true words of God. That's coming. I'm anticipating that. You know what I'm anticipating? I'm anticipating persecution. I'm anticipating a time where those who walk down that road of homosexuality will see the error of their ways. God will open their hearts and they will repent and they will come here and they will say, thank you for preaching that message, sticking to it, doing it with grace and love. We're glad to be here and you're anticipating seeing it. We're not angry. We are not alarmed, nor are we angry.